You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. On today's show, we will be covering different scientific topics relating to the COVID-19 pandemic. First, you'll hear a report about a new, locally developed diagnostic tool that quickly detects the presence of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, in human samples. Dr. Scarlett Lee talks with Doug Olson, Vice President of Operations at Ithaca-based Rionix, about his company's Encompass workstation. Rionix recently received emergency FDA approval for their machine that quickly analyzes nasal and oral swab test samples. Later in the show, you'll hear my interview of a psychologist who is interested in how human minds are shaped by their life circumstances. Dr. Vivian Zayas, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Cornell University, talks about how humans change their behavior in order to avoid infection and disease. But first off, here is Liz Mahood with this week's Science News. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and I'm here this week with the Science News. Our first story is of the study that might sound a little outlandish at first. At Cornell Agritech's research vineyard in Geneva, New York, there are robots roaming the fields at night, shining UV light on the grapes. These robots aren't a menace, but instead are a main part of the study, which aims to find effective ways to kill powdery mildew growing on grape plants. Powdery mildew is a fungus that can kill many plants, including grapes and strawberries. Researchers have known about the power of UV light to kill powdery mildew for decades, but chemical sprays remain the primary treatment of powdery mildew in the field. These sprays not only cause environmental impacts, but are not very effective as long-term solution, as powdery mildew can adapt to them within a single growing season. What researchers are finding to be more effective is exposing powdery mildew to UV light during the nighttime. Powdery mildew, as well as plants and humans, are used to being exposed to UV light during the day, and have mechanisms in place to repair the internal damage UV light causes. These repair systems are inactive in powdery mildew at night, however, and therefore exposure to low levels of UV light at night can harm powdery mildew, but not the great plants themselves. The robots fitted with UV light are autonomous which allows light to be delivered to the plants without needing anyone to pull an all-nighter. This research is run by David Gowdery, with robots provided by the Norwegian company Saga Robotics. Our final news story is about the discovery of a novel tumor suppressor. Tumors are the result of unchecked cell growth. These cells have accumulated so many mutations that they would normally be killed, but this internal mechanism is rendered defunct in many types of cancers. The internal metabolism of tumor cells is also different from normal cells. Tumor cells typically thrive in low oxygen conditions, which is contrary to the usual environment of healthy cells. To facilitate surviving in a low oxygen environment, specific genes need to be activated. 
and prior research has found gene HIF1 to be one of these activating agents. The novel tumor suppressor, called TYPARP, was found to degrade HIF1 in a new study led by Cornell Professor of Chemistry and Chemical Biology, Heining Lin. Lin and his team found that TYPARP can also degrade other activating agents that, like HIF1, facilitate beneficial environments for tumors in different types of cancers. This research was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and is entitled, TYPARP Forms Nuclear Condensates to Degrade HIF1-alpha and Suppress Tumorogenesis. I'm Liz Mahood, and that was this episode's Science News. You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Next up, you'll hear Dr. Scarlett Lee's interview of Doug Olson, Vice President of Operations at Rionix. Today, we are excited to bring you a truly locally sourced science story, the story of how Rionix, a local company, decided to utilize their knowledge and expertise to help in the fight against SARS-CoV-2. Already having the skills and experience in diagnostics, they quickly were able to deploy their Encompass family of workstations to test for SARS-CoV-2 in local rural hospitals. Let's begin. Hello, Scarlett. My name is Doug Olson. I'm the Vice President of Operations here at Rionics in Ithaca, New York. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're really excited to hear the story of Rionix. Can you talk first a little bit about the history behind the formation of Rionix? Sure. Uh, Rionix spun out of a company called Kionix that's also here in Ithaca, New York, that was founded by our CEO, Greg Galvin, who's a PhD out of Cornell University. Kionix specialized in uh, inertial sensors, like accelerometers you find in your cell phone. So in 2009, Rionix was officially formed basically using the same MEMS-type technology, but applied to a molecular diagnostics-type platform. And so that's where the the whole thing started. Great. Um, And I should mention that we're very excited to hear more about this company today and what their role has been in the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, And particularly in that you have come out with a product to help in the testing of coronavirus. And this uses, I believe, what is called the Encompass family of workstations. Is that correct? That is correct. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Encompass Workstation? Sure. The uh, Encompass Workstation is is designed to be uh, a fully automated molecular testing platform that is exceptionally easy to use. it, It doesn't require a PhD scientist to do molecular diagnostics. Basically, you can take any type of sample, blood, urine, uh, food enrichments or uh, beer, <laughs> uh, loaded into the sample tubes, and you place that in the instrument along with the consumables uh, that are required to do the test, and you select the assay that you want to run on the touchscreen, uh, close the lid, and the instrument does all the work, and you get the results out for whatever uh, pathogen you might be trying to detect. That sounds like a very useful product. How did you originally come up with this idea? We are committed to improving standards of care by making molecular diagnostics available to more people in more places more often. So to that end, we wanted something that was simple to use, um, that had a, a good footprint in terms of uh, testing throughput, um, and something that was relevant to the marketplace. And so when the coronavirus pandemic occurred, how did Rionix shift and think of using this workstation to help with this huge problem? 
Yeah, that's a, a great question, Scarlett. So we've already been in the marketplace um, for, like I said, food pathogen testing, um, beverage spoilage. We were working on uh, a method to fully automate next generation sequencing library preparation. So we've already had you know this technology in place and up and running. So it was fairly simple to move to um, you know any any kind of virus actually. So once we realized this was becoming a problem and testing was required in the United States, uh, we put all hands on deck to developing this this coronavirus assay, which fit you know very very nicely into our technology, and we turned it around in you know about six weeks' time. We had a submission into FDA for our emergency use authorization. Can you tell me a little bit more what it was like to work in that kind of atmosphere? Was what was the spirit of the company like? Wow, it was amazing. Uh, everybody was so invi- invigorated. Um, Everybody was just coming, coming out and saying, you know, how can I help? What can I do? Everybody, literally everybody, was working around the clock seven days a week to get this done. Uh, there was so much testing going on, so many great ideas and innovation happening. Like I said, to get to get an assay from nothing to an FDA submission in six weeks was just nothing I've ever experienced in my life. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the test. So there's been a lot of press about different tests for uh, SARS-CoV-2. What specific type of test does this machine perform? Yeah, so it's a molecular diagnostic test. Um, it does a reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction amplification uh, for the RNA target, uh, which is fairly ubiquitous for the the virus detection as opposed to the antibody detection. Um, so our platform, you know, dive into the details, you, we, we take the nasopharyngeal swab, put it in our sample tube, and we can do up to, tw- we do 24 samples uh, at once. And then the, the workstation um, aspirates the sample. Uh, we insert it into, into our consumable where we, where we actually do the uh, DNA extraction, purification, and then move on to the reverse transcriptase PCR, and then ultimately we do an endpoint detection on a low-density um, array where we've spotted the uh, capture probe for the, the CoV-2. And then we, we image that array to determine if the, um, the probe actually lit up, indicating a positive sample or did not, which would be negative. Great, thank you for that detailed description. And it should be mentioned that this is a similar type of test that if, you know, you say you're in Ithaca and you sign up to go get a nasopharyngeal swab at the drive through center at the ball, this is a similar type of test to what they're performing. So what's the advantage of this machine over what's currently being done? Um, yeah, so before, you know, if I can mention Cayuga Medical, for instance, would have to send their uh, sample out to a central lab. Uh, and it could take you know five to seven days to get a result back. Uh, as of today, Cayuga Medical has five of our workstations in place, and they're running you know 24 hours, seven days a week um, on the workstation. So they're collecting samples at the mall, running them over to to the medical center, and they can get you know same day results for the patient. So where else is the Encompass Family workstations currently in place to test for COVID-19? Yeah, that's a great question, Scarlett. So as I mentioned, uh, we do have five workstations currently running at um, Kiyuga Medical right here in Ithaca. Uh, We also have workstations in Binghamton, New York, Johnson City, uh, supported by the mayor. 
Uh, we're also at several other southern tier and, and central New York hospitals as of now, and we're expanding that in, in sort of concentric circles as our manufacturing capacity expands and can, can support those customers. That's very exciting, especially that you have such a huge local impact on the community here. So obviously these machines are, I'm sure, being prioritized for use at hospitals, but do you envision these machines being used in other facilities as well or in other scenarios? Uh, yeah, we've worked um, previously with central labs, these large central you know, nationwide labs, so that that's a, a good footprint for us for, you know, not thousands of tests a day, but, um, you know, dozens of tests. <clears throat> and local hospitals, of course, that's that's kind of our sweet spot in terms of our throughput of, of 24 samples per run. Can we talk a little bit about the accuracy of the test? Do you know what the accuracy is? Sure. For our submission to FDA for our emergency use authorization, we had to establish a limit of detection for the assay, which turned out to be 625 genomic equivalents per milliliter. And then FDA also requires sensitivity and specificity. That's your, you know, positive sample rate versus your negative sample rate. Um, and they require greater than 95%, uh, which we achieved, and that's what we submitted to them. The way this machine is being used currently sounds like it's just uh, utilizing coronavirus testing workflow that had already been in place as nurses or other medical health professionals taking the nasopharyngeal swabs. Do you envision that that will be continued in the future or is this test or so easy to use that individuals might even be able to take their own samples? Yes, we're continuing to explore you know, what, what opportunities there are. As you mentioned right now, it's nasopharyngeal swab administered by a, a healthcare professional. Um, we're actively looking at uh, saliva um, as a sample type, whether that would be um, something the patient could actually submit or not is, you know, something we need to understand going forward. But we're always exploring, you know, what the opportunities are. Where does the manufacturing happen for these kits? Uh, it happens at the technology park up here in, in uh, the the Cornell Technology Park in in Rayana. At uh, sorry, in Ithaca. Yeah, and we've um, you know, we're making a pretty significant uh, investment in capital equipment to to scale up our manufacturing operations as well, and a large portion of that happens you know, right in the central New York area. So it's uh, it's it's had an interesting impact on a lot of our our local businesses that support us. Um, you know, in terms of supply chain, we'll you know we we put in an order for material, and a supplier will say, "Oh, gee, we don't know if we can we can accommodate your order." But we say, hey, we're doing COVID-19 testing, and they say, okay, when you know, when do you need it? <laughs> it's it's been astonishing. So you mentioned previously that there are other are other types of tests for COVID-19, and something many people have heard about in the news is antibody testing. Does Reunix have plans to develop either antibody testing or other diagnostic testing for COVID-19? Uh, we would likely expand to just uh, testing for perhaps other upper respiratory infections along with the COVID-19. We have in the past done a lateral flow antibody test on the same platform in conjunction with, with viral testing, but we don't have immediate plans for that, but you never know what the future will hold. So you've mentioned a little bit that Reunix has other operations in place. What other problems are you guys interested in addressing in the future? Yeah, in the future, I mean, our, our chief biologist is very uh, excited about cancer diagnostics, 
um, in the past we've um, we've done single nucleic polymorphism uh, testing. So you know, kind of the sky's the limit in, in terms of you know molecular diagnostics for for where we might end up. But you know, anything anything we can do to to help improve the human condition is is on our radar. Thank you so much for all the information on how Renex has been helping with the COVID-19 pandemic. Is there anything else you would like to add? Uh, no, it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, Scarlett, and we appreciate your interest. We're happy, so happy we can help our community and, and central New York and, and the country with, with our testing. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for joining us today and telling the great locally sourced science story behind Rionex's Compass family of workstations. Thank you for listening to our interview with Doug Olson of Rionix. We hope you enjoyed hearing how Rionix has developed a COVID test in use in our local community. Stay safe out there. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Send us an email at science at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about our show by tweeting at FLX Science Radio. Also, check out our podcast at LocallySourceScience.org. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. During this time of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Tompkins County and Schuyler County Health Departments have urged local residents to practice physical distancing and wear face masks to help reduce the spread of the virus. You might not realize that, even before public health officials announced these directives, you may have already started to change your behaviors in response to the fear of contracting the SARS-CoV-2 virus. This is because humans have evolved to express innate behaviors to reduce potential exposure to pathogens. To learn more about this psychological and behavioral immune response, I spoke with Dr. Vivian Zayas, Associate Professor in the Cornell University Department of Psychology. Dr. Zayas studies how people's minds shape and are shaped by their life circumstances. She recently published an article in the online magazine, The Conversation. It is titled, How People React to the Threat of Disease Could Mean COVID-19 is Reshaping Personalities. I asked Dr. Zayas to talk about the idea that humans have evolved to express behaviors that help them avoid infection. As human beings, we have acquired, we're not just a blank slate. Part of what each of us is born into this world with is a system that has evolved uh, through our ancestral history to solve certain problems. And one of those problems that have, has been very important for survival is to avoid infection, avoid, um, avoid infection um, and exposure to pathogens. Part of the system would be our disgust response. So we, when we encounter something, that um, we think is, it's not think in terms of consciously, but certain aspects of the world, um, like a, a dead carcass, um, feces, elicit a disgust response, a very strong re- response. And that response is associated with an emotional reaction um, and behavioral responses to avoid. 
and that response also generalizes beyond just those specific stimuli. So, for example, if I give you, you know, a piece of chocolate that's shaped like feces, people also will elicit this oh response and avoid. And you can almost imagine someone moving away from it. Um, and so these are the sort of hardwired basic responses of this system. We all have this response um, of we think that there's a possibility of infection and it's transmitted by other people. Um, we want to protect ourselves and we're going to be less social because being social, even though being social has huge benefits, it does have costs. You can expose yourself to more people and, more, and when there's a risk, that when that risk actually is high, um, then the costs outweigh the benefits. Um, having said that, even though, you know, evolutionaries argue that this has been advantageous for our species, and so when something's advantageous for the species, we should all have it, um, have acquired the system. There are individual differences, too, in the sensitivity. So we know that there are individual differences in sensitivity to disgust. Some people are high in disgust sensitivity, and some people are low in disgust sensitivity. And the more that you're sensitive to these cues, the more that you're going to be sensitive to, you know, the, the current situation of COVID-19 and the fears of contamination. Um, because now you have it being just in everybody's consciousness. Uh, all the time. And if you were particularly sensitive to it before, now it might be particularly pronounced. Dr. Zayas then describes studies by Dr. Mark Schaller of the University of British Columbia in Canada. He studies the evolution of disease avoidance. They look at personality across different cultures um, all over the world. And in their analysis, they looked at whether areas that had a high prevalence for infectious disease differed from those that had a low prevalence in terms of their personality. And what they found in that analysis was that regions where people were experiencing, you know, a risk that they could um, get disease through social contact, um, those areas reported being lower on extroversion, lower in openness, and being more conservative with regards to their preferences for mates. So preferring long-term relationships um, rather than casual dating relationships and hookups. And those regions that didn't have this risk for prevalence were more extroverted, more open, and a little bit more um, less conservative in terms of their sexual attitudes, and behaviors. Here, Dr. Zayas describes another example of how humans might alter their behavior in order to avoid disease. Another one would be being more conservative in our thinking and more traditional in our thinking, um, wanting to be conventional. So some of our cultural practices involve how we prepare food, for example. Um, and, and, and practices with regards to hygiene. And to be more conventional is to be, to sort of follow the tried and true, to not depart, to not be creative, to not say, well, let me go and try this new, you know, type of food from a new area. Um, 
also when there are risks of infection, people become more conservative in terms of their preferences, preferring more sort of tried and true um, routines and behaviors versus being more curious, which might expose someone to, to risk. Zayas then talked about how people's psychological responses to the fear of infection are flexible and can change. Here, she describes the behaviors that she has been observing in our area. Right now, I think it's very kind of obvious that people's behaviors have changed. If you walk down the streets in Ithaca, people move away, right? Someone's approaching you and people will actually go and move so that you're maintaining that six feet distance. That's not a common um, behavioral response when you're walking down the street, usually in Ithaca. People usually don't like move away. Um, so we, we're seeing behavioral avoidance and you know, um, there's still an attempt to maintain affiliation by sort of acknowledging the reason why we're doing it is to you know, not spread uh, COVID-19. So it's actually uh, the underlying motivation is very sort of social to try to protect our community. Uh, nonetheless, we are seeing these behavioral re- responses, um, and you know, you wonder how long will it be well, um, until like that goes away. Mm-hmm. And one thought is that even when the fear, the actual fear, goes away, the reality of contracting this disease goes away, um, there might be reminders, and those reminders might trigger this response. Um, and so. You know, this system is flexible, so it should be more active when there is a threat than when there isn't a threat. It should be more active for people who feel more vulnerable to catching it than to not. So if someone feels that they're really vulnerable to disease, you see that these effects are more pronounced. They become much more, less extroverted, less open, compared to someone who feels invulnerable, right? And so it varies also depending on the person. If humans have adapted a psychological immune response that causes them to avoid infection, I wondered about people who reject the ideas that they should social distance and wear face masks. Here, Zayas indicates that those who go against these governmental directives are more the exception than the rule. Again, from this, this evolutionary perspective, we, have, we are extremely social beings. And when we say that human beings are social beings, one characteristic, one feature of that is that we are cooperative. We, want to, we need to cooperate. We have needed to cooperate with other people beyond our immediate family to survive. Mm-hmm. And I have found it remarkable how much, as a collective, we've actually followed through these social distancing practices. Yes, we can look at the news and find those situations and where people are violating social distancing recommendations and so on. But, Wow. We have been doing this as a mass collective. We have shut down society. And so I have thought that as a community, we've been very cooperative, collective, and sensitive. And it's, it's been really 
something to, to admire. Finally, Dr. Zayas concedes that there are social costs to maintaining the restrictive directives mandated by public health officials. She points out that as the risk of contracting the disease decreases, humans will respond by lowering their defenses. These cultural influences can interfere with one's innate psychological tendency to avoid infection. As the risk decreases, I think we're going to have, you know, there there are costs and benefits to these behaviors. And it could be as the risk decreases, people are seeing that it's more costly to not engage. And that's true. You know, there are benefits to being social. There are benefits to interacting with other people. If the cost of being the risk of infection starts to decrease, that means that the benefits may start outweighing those costs. Uh, We might still want the cost to be lowered, however. Just by arguing that we have an evolved system to deal with infection, a psychological system to deal with infection, doesn't discount that we also have cultural systems in place to deal with infections. Dr. Vivian Zayas, um, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at Cornell University, thank you very much for taking time out to speak with me today. Thank you. It was very uh, enjoyable to sort of reflect on this very unique time in our society. You've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. Dr. Scarlett Lee and Candace Limper produced the interview of Doug Olson at Rionix, and I produced the interview of Dr. Vivian Zayas. Liz Mahood wrote the Science News. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Jordan. You can find all of our archive shows at locallysourcedscience.org. Science out. <laughs>